0: Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAFS Think Tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode fifty-eight, uh, and this week it's an interview with Jim Minton, and uh, Jim is the chief executive of Twinby Hall. Um, Toynbee Hall is a fascinating organisation that's been around for over 100 years in the east end of London uh, and it was originally a university settlement but it's this kind of a uh, place based organisation these days but has also as you'll hear in the conversation played a kind of wider role in the sort of history of social reform in the UK and, and uh, had connections with all sorts of fascinating uh, figures such as um, William Beveridge and Clement Attlee Um And uh, Jim and I had a good wide-ranging conversation, uh, sort of talking about uh, the history of Toynbee Hall. Uh, and its kind of modern role in the East End of London. Um, Also talking about sort of how as a place-based organisation it also uh, tries to make sure that it takes what it learns uh, in a particular place and makes it relevant more broadly at a kind of national level to sort of inform wider conversations uh, and kind of how other place-based organisations can do that. Um, We talked about some of the challenges of working in a particular place around things like Uh, kind of bringing together different um, communities and kind of acting as a focal point for those Um, and in the course of that we talked about the importance of sort of bricks and mortar physical buildings that uh, people from different walks of life could all share and the role those play in communities. Um, We also talked about the challenges of kind of coordinating efforts at a local level and sort of who the various different uh, actors tend to be and kind of how they work together Um, We also talked uh, sort of more theoretically about kind of what place actually means to people, particularly in the context of a complex city like London, which is uh, very kind of multifaceted and it's kind of difficult sometimes to know where people's sense of belonging starts and ends. Um, And we also talked about the impact of kind of demographic changes and sort of gentrification, which is a big uh, issue in an area like East London and what that had meant for the work of, of Toynbee Hall. Um, so it was a great conversation Um, I should say that the the audio quality probably isn't the best we've ever had partly that's because uh, I think Jim was sitting in one of the very large uh, kind of halls in in Toynbee Hall Um, so you know that's not too bad it gives it a nice air of reverb and you can get a sort of audio picture of what the building must be like Um, probably less fortunate is the fact that a couple of points I think somebody is doing some industrial floor buffing in a different room so there's a, a slight drone that I've tried to get rid of in the background but hopefully nothing too bad Uh, and i should say before we start i'd just like to say thank you to my colleague steph taylor for putting me in touch with jim and setting up the podcast so thank you steph okay without further ado let's go into the conversation and i'll be back at the end for the housekeeping and tidying up okay great so i'm here with jim minton hello jim Hi, Rodri. And Jim is the chief executive of Toynbee Hall. So maybe the, the best place to start really is if you could just explain for people listening who may not have heard of Toynbee Hall what it is and what the organisation does.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, actually, probably there's quite a lot of people who might have heard somewhere in the recesses of their mind about Toynbee Hall. But probably still aren't all that clear about, about what we do. Essentially, we're a, we're a historic uh, community organisation of a, of a very particular type. We were the first university settlement, so set up about 135 years ago in 1884 in the east end of London, where there were real kind of pressing problems of poor housing, squalor, A lot of people unemployed or or certainly a very casual labour, people not having access to justice, people not having enough food to put on the table. And some people thought, well, instead of just kind of coming in and trying to do a little bit here and there to help, why can't we kind of live in the community and listen to those people and help them develop solutions for themselves to some of those challenges? And, you know, here we are 135 years later in the same community in East London where, Despite huge kind of uh, improvements and, 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 and economic growth and the kind of shadow of the city looming over us, many of those same problems still exist today, and we try and do the same thing so give people the opportunities to to try and solve issues that, that face them themselves, take the issues that they 're kind of concerned about and help them by using their learning to influence change and, and crucially, we do it all in one place in this place in Toynbee Hall in East London where we've been for all those years.
0: Great. And yeah, and there's lots of things I want to pick up on there and I think both sort of specifically about Toynbee Hall as a physical place and its location but also kind of about the the founding ethos and what's what's guided you there. And I mean one thing you you said first off was that part of that um that origin story was about trying to Bring together people from different walks of life i guess to to kind of get more of an awareness of of the reality of social need and perhaps more of a sense of what it would take to to address some of those problems i mean do you is that something that you you still do and kind of how how do you do that that convening role of bringing different people together
1: yeah that's i mean thats, that's that is really true and i mean one can kind of egg the history there's no doubt about it i'm sure quite a lot of it was quite paternalistic some of the photos we've got around of history are very kind of you know male upper class and middle class dominated in terms of the kind of people who were running the place but nevertheless there was always the ethos of of trying to to kind of live side by side with people and there's a very you know as you'll have seen even over the last few days on on social media around uh, the Labour Party conference and its plans for social security. There's a very live debate currently around the voices of people with lived experience genuinely in, influencing policy and that that's been a strand through our history it's always and and and, and what you know you can kind of debate the extent to which us or, or any organization have managed to do that successfully it's very it's something certainly in the kind of couple of years since I've been here with the team I'm working with We 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 view very strongly as a kind of as as something that that is important for us and important for civil society that distinguishes us from other kinds of organisation whereby we will try and whatever kind of service offering we might be trying to develop, we'll do it in partnership with the people within the community, we'll give them the say over, over kind of what their needs are, what their aspirations are, and we'll kind of help them to develop the solutions to it. So it's a, you know, yeah, it's a very, it's, it's still a very strong narrative for us. And, and, and it's nice to see that it's also a very strong narrative for lots of other organisations working in kind of poverty and social justice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and do you find just just focusing on that that particular question for a minute about sort of empowering people to find or develop their their own solutions? I mean, what what are some of the the kind of the the success stories that you've seen through that and perhaps some of the challenges because I think sometimes it gets presented too easily as, oh, if you just, you know, let people make the decisions for themselves or give them the money everything will work out yeah, magically. Absolutely,
1: but... absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, there was a very insightful kind of tweet, I think, from from um, Trust for London the other day saying the kind of notion of co-production isn't just handing things over to people and saying you get on with it. It's a kind of, it's a shared dialogue between people who've got some kind of technical expertise and people who've got lived experience. And I think that's very much the case. I mean, for example, in, in, in we do a lot of work in financial health and inclusion. And I think you know, the world's moved on significantly, partly in, in thanks to some of the work that we've done at Toynbee Hall historically. But, you know, traditional approaches to financial education might have been much more kind of I suppose teach student i.e., you know here are the ways that you can manage your finances. Here are the kind of do 's and don 'ts make sure you save all of this kind of thing. whereas we try and, and, and increasingly others do as well you know we we try and take very much more kind of peer learning approach to it, so supporting people to kind of understand their own situation, decide for themselves what levels of what levels of savings they might be able to make, what their aspirations are around money, how they might manage money where they might be able to find support from it, and then actively to go out and support others in the community through kind of peer mentoring or or working together on things now you know some might say well that that isn't gonna change the fundamental problem that they just don't have enough money to live on, which is, which is very true. But actually, we just published some research today, in fact, that shows that, that, that people on low incomes are actually just as willing to kind of do things like have savings plans as people on higher incomes. It's just there are systemic barriers in the way. So our first step is to try and understand and work with people and help them find solutions and feel that they can find solutions at the same time as not ignoring the systemic problems that might hold them back. I mean, it's more challenging, I think, with with kind of transactional services, if you like. Like, you know, we, we, one of our core um, things that we do and, and have done for some time and, and, and support a whole range of other organizations to, to do this is, is provide debt advice for people who get into financial distress themselves. And there's a kind of – there's a there's – a, you know, Debt advisors are qualified, there's an institute of uh, uh, money advice, there's a kind of whole set of quality standards around it. It's a, it's a, it's a professional skill. And so uh, by nature, it's kind of uh, someone will come, they'll, they'll say they've got debts, they'll explain the nature of problems, and a debt advisor will help them work that through. Now, the extent to which you can make that a kind of a shared experience or someone kind of taking ownership of it is challenging, particularly where funding is, is around kind of, well, giving this, these kind of interventions to people, making sure they move from A to B to C through a system. But, but it's something that, that you know, we're, we're working on and it's something that genuinely we think that there, there's an appetite for learning about because no... No kind of, I suppose, transactional issue like debt is ever going to be an issue in isolation. People will have all kinds of other issues with them, so the more you can help them open up and explore those issues, the better, ideally, the solutions that they'll find will be.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and there's there's a, definitely a couple of things I want to to pick up on there. One of them, um, I was thinking as you were sort of saying about the the idea of trying to, you know, uh, use models of co-production or empower people to to you know as far as possible find their own solutions. This seems like there's a, a lot of talk about that kind of thing more widely in the world of philanthropy, and particularly among grant makers and interest in things like participatory approaches to to grant making but but still in practice there's that sort of awkward bit where people realize that they've genuinely got to give away power over decision making and that might bring with it unintended consequences like people making not such good decisions or decisions that you yourself as a funder might not have agreed with do do you find yourself having to mediate any of those relationships with funders you sort of have, have the right intentions but find the reality of...
1: Very much, very much. And, 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 but I think the intentions is the key and I think that the kind of... Um, I mean, it's a, this, this opens up a whole load of kind of general issues. Uh, I mean, it's specific in, in a sense that we, we, we one of the things that um, we've wanted to do over the last couple of years and increasingly see it's our purpose to do as a kind of fairly long-established um, kind of well-established organization in this part of London is to kind of really try and work with people to understand need and so that that in, you know we've embarked on a way of doing that which isn't about us asking people it's about us training people then to go out and ask each other now of course that creates a kind of uh, that 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 is about us giving up power, and we we had a dialogue with a funder just last week, actually, a fantastic, very very thoughtful funder who wanted to who bought into to our kind of narrative that people had told us that there were there were issues around safety which was a barrier to participation, particularly amongst older people. So we wanted to go and find out a bit more about it, and we were doing that, and and we are doing that, and we're getting a lot of data. But one of the challenges that the funder pointed out was actually our our data was. Because we were getting so much of it, risked moving away from what their actual focus was. Was that was on kind of estate management solutions, if you like? You know, they they weren't being as constricting as that, but that was one of the the things that they were most interested in. And if we had a, if we through through working with people and talking to people, have told if people told us, well, actually, we want to focus on transport, or we want to focus on. A, antisocial behaviour by young people or whatever, which is slightly different from the brief, then you've got to talk about that. But the the kind of the beauty of the the you know the, the relationship is that you can have those conversations and you can work out ways in which, well, can we balance the two things? Can we find a way of focusing the next stage of it uh, a bit more geographically, et cetera, et cetera. But it's yeah, it's an ongoing dialogue. And I think people, including us oh, certainly including me at people, have got to be prepared to to have our assumptions challenged if we if we're gonna do this stuff properly, otherwise there's a real risk and we've had it said to us before that people just feel let down. They think, God, you've asked us this a dozen times, you never do anything about it. Why am I gonna tell you my view anymore? So
0: yeah yeah totally and on on that question you were sort of saying there actually it's sometimes if you've got specific cause based funders coming in, actually, if you're then starting to veer towards things because of what the data's telling you about needs to touch on areas that they don't see as their core uh concern, that could be a problem. you know one of the other trends we're seeing more broadly at the moment is towards place based approaches. do you think that's that could potentially make those sorts of problems easier and actually make it easier to focus on the kind of the needs of individuals or communities in the round and get away from the idea of kind of cause silos.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I and mean, it's being, you know, there's, there's part of me is like, well, I would say that because I run essentially a place based organization. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I have to be careful of that. But, you know, I do see from the the, you know, the people who come to our debt advice center and the people who come to our wellbeing center and the people who are just in and around Toynbee Hall, you where know, we're, we're, we're uh, newly reopened. Building open to the public, we're building a community garden in the front of our uh, on a very busy road in East London. So, increasingly, we're you know, and I'm very proud of this on on our behalf. We're much more in touch with and open to the the, the community around us. But it, but but nevertheless, we, it's not kind of um, uh, perfect in, in our responses. But we, we we will have a kind of sense that we can we can shape a place. So if somebody comes to us. And they they come to our wellbeing centre, for example, and it turns out through conversations, et cetera, that they might need debt advice or legal advice, other things that we can provide, or or they might be a, an undocumented migrant, or there are other organisations who can help them like that. If, you know, you can join things up better. I guess the, the the caveat would be, and we've seen, you know, obviously this year, Lambeth Law Centre went bust. Other law centres are really struggling, and there's there's got to be a place for kind of technical expertise around the law or around debt or around youth services or whatever it might be that that kind of exist without it having to all just be in some you know anchor organization or 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 even bigger player that says oh it's all right we can whatever your problem is we can deal with you because the fact is they won't be able to and you'll need an amount of specialism anyway so i think you've probably got to have a mixed economy you've got to have both
0: yeah absolutely that's interesting you're saying there about the the kind of advisory services particularly ones that have a reasonably high level of, of technical content to them because it i mean it's certainly i was just rereading um Uh, for various reasons, kind of William Beveridge's book about voluntary action and kind of the vision for what it would look like in the welfare state. And one of the things he clearly says is one of the most important functions of sort of voluntary activity will continue to be giving people the knowledge and advice to actually access or challenge welfare state services but they do seem to be particularly struggling I mean in in your experience I know it's sort of potentially not sort of directly relevant to Toynbee Hall but why why do you think it is that those services perhaps are struggling even at a time when people seem very enthusiastic about increasingly local place-based approaches um
1: I'm not. I'm not sure what the what the example would be. I think because think, think just generally people will say oh, we're struggling because there isn't enough money, and I think that you know that's a, that's a kind of I suppose a, a fact of life of uh, uh, of austerity and, and, and cuts to some of the main sources of funding, which, which, which kind of whether whether we liked it or not, that you know that that the, the local authority and other kind of statutory funding on a local level was was incredibly important to sustaining those services, and now it's reduced, and so therefore people are struggling but I I, I think I I sense your question is less kind of simplistic than that it's more around don't you want
0: to to I think I think what I'm thinking yeah absolutely I mean obviously there's the obvious sort of sense that the actual causes of money have gone but I guess it's I mean it goes more broadly to why have they not necessarily been replaced by others is there something about the value of that type of advisory service that has been lost in the sort of shift away from from uh, public sector grants and hasn't been picked up in perhaps the sort of place based narrative
1: yeah maybe i mean there are you know looking up a of the other day that that, that says that we don't provide you know we don't support generalist advice and there's a kind of you know there's a there's a sense that there are quite you know if, if, if philanthropy is all the good things that it should be around innovation and trying things that might not kind of work first off and learning and things like that then that does unfortunately create a problem to saying well they're just the kind of fairly standard we need to be here on hand and open our doors so that if people have got an issue they can come in and explore it with us is is more difficult to kind of support in that context but you know i think there's, there's a recognition and maybe that's that's where it does come back to kind of um place and openness and and just being uh, perceived as and actually being a place where people can come in and start developing solutions for themselves, that that I suppose that gets away from the notion of being, in a sense, just propping up a fairly old-fashioned view of um, disseminating information to people on behalf of the state and turns it into something that's more empowering to people. Now the, the reality is that's difficult to do. But I think the appetite from if you can if you can recast the narrative in that sense, then I think probably funders will be more excited about it. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of question of I, I mean, one, you know, we're, we're 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 fortunate to be a relatively you know kind of medium sized organisation, um, but some of the smaller organisations that I work with get very frustrated that that, that 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 there isn't just a kind of assumption from funders and others that you know we've been here doing the same things to help people for many years, it's not our fault But the system's still broken, but we're doing our best and you could kind of, you know, you could just give us a bit of generosity of spirit and support this kind of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not an easy answer.
0: No, and, and I think actually what you were saying, but two of those, the things there about the, the, the potential downside of the focus on the the need for philanthropy to kind of drive innovation or discovery and and that sense that people might sometimes look at things that have been around for a long time and instead of thinking, oh, that's good, they've established a track record, think, well, why why do they still need to be around? Um, I was at a meeting the other day with, with a, a bunch of sort of foundations and grant makers, and one of the things that was being said there was actually, you know, do we need to make a case for... You know some of those things that aren't big bets or innovation but and you know but actually are just kind of the necessary parts of the fabric of of civic life and and those are you know less glamorous in a lot of ways, but those things about particularly things like just providing physical space or buildings for people to to come together in so
1: totally especially especially because the costs of doing those things um with you you know, all right things, but with health and safety and safeguarding and uh, loan working and all of those kind of things are actually much more expensive to do than they might have been, in fact. Like, so so there needs to be an appreciation. I mean, my friend Rob Trimble <laughs> probably Bromley by Bo, is brilliant. He, you know, he quite often just says, gosh, you know, my granny learned... 70 years ago, the value of gardening. Why Why do we need to prove that gardening is good anymore? Can't you just give us something to kind of support, to support people doing gardening? And, they, you know, there are costs associated with that. It doesn't happen by magic. But nevertheless, it's kind of... One might struggle and say, "Well, it's not particularly innovative." Well, does it have to be innovative if it does good to people? And that's that's. I think there's a strong argument for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and on on that sort of place based thing, I mean, and and particularly around the sort of just having a bricks and mortar physical space. I mean, one of the the arguments. I mean, going back to something we touched on already about that is that if you provide that and make it genuinely an asset that the whole of the community uses, it can it can sort of build some of that bridging social capital, uh, particularly at the moment when everybody's very concerned about the amount of division we appear to have in society. People are very keen to look for ways to bring different people together and overcome some of those divides. What What's your experience of how much that actually happens in practice or, or kind of how much effort you have to go to, to to genuinely sort of bring different bits of the community together, even in a, a small local area?
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, I, before I came here, I was for five years at London Youth, which is a charity that works with about 400 youth organisations in, in, in London, many of whom, not all of them, but many of whom have buildings or spaces of their own. And and it, it was there was a very strong kind of principle and there is now in, in Toynbee Hall and the kind of the community organizations world I suppose I'm in where there's a lot of crossover with, with with youth organizations not surprisingly of that kind of sense that you know a bit like libraries or hospitals or schools you know these are pieces of civic infrastructure that, that places where the community can come and go and do interesting things meet new people find out about stuff uh, get angry about stuff, learn about stuff, all of those kind of things are really vital if you want to have a healthy community. And I, and I think that's as true for kind of young people's youth spaces as it is for community centres, as it as it might be for cultural or art spaces. You know, these things don't, these things are by nature, Ch- change happens and kind of, and, and fun happens, I think, with groups and an ability to connect each other. And so you need some need somewhere where that can happen that so that, but that doesn't mean that that everything needs to be about buildings at all again from my youth work days one of the mantras was you know go to where the young people are particularly with the young people who weren't engaging and it's the same for for us we were in a community center which is fantastic and really well used by people. But but by definition, there are people who are housebound, there are people who are too scared to go out, there are people who've got no one who can transport them. We have to go out into the community and reach out to those people and bring things to them. And we have to be smart in our world and go to those other institutions like libraries, like schools, like GP surgeries and provide stuff there because in a sense it's no good expecting people in their busy lives, to have to kind of always make the effort to come to you for something so so we're you know we're balancing lots of things but i I think that notion of a kind of civic infrastructure is really, really important, and I think at times at times gets lost you know in in regeneration plans in in London and in in kind of strategic development plans, all of the pieces aren't necessarily considered, or it's just quite hard work to be honest, it's quite hard work to know really where people go for things and what's going to make them kind of engage with something.
0: And just just thinking about that, I haven't lived in London for the last three years, but I, I was there for sort of twelve or fourteen before, so I, I feel <laughs> a really strong association with it. But you know, certainly one of the things that that I found being involved in sort of various small local organisations and community organisations as part of, you know, totally honestly, the kind of forces of gentrification coming into an area was even when you had lots of well-meaning people in some of those organisations doing it because they wanted to try and avoid that problem of having people from, you know, different communities, kind of incomers and people who lived there for a long time living in the same place, but essentially they might as well be in totally different cities, let alone, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, do you Have you found that sort of gentrification in the area where you're working has presented new challenges or new opportunities, or have you seen kind of new people using your services or getting involved with Toynbee Hall as, as a result in the last few years
1: yeah I think that's, that's, that's probably one of our big kind of strategic questions stroke challenge and opportunity over the next years going forward for you know you, some, some people listening what. No, know. A lot of them might know. We've we've been through a, a renewal and a redevelopment of our our site. So we've been in the same place for 130 odd years, but it was tumbled down like many many kind of pieces of infrastructure. And we've rebuilt it. We've opened a new community centre. We're just finishing community garden, as I said before. And and that that is that is really interesting because where we are, we've got you know. Expensive flats around us. We've got fan, you know fabulous kind of WeWork space across the road. We've got all of the bustle of Shoreditch and Brick Lane. And again, for that, sorry, apologies for those people who don't live in London. But these are kind of areas where there's a lot of economic activity. There's a lot of both visitors in the daytime and kind of visitors in the evening time. And there's a kind of risk in places like this that the that, that universes exist in parallel, as it were. Like that, you know, that people will. Uh, wander along having a fantastic time in london's hip shoreditch at the same time as people who are living in bits of of the same area might be experiencing a very different kind of of uh, of city and so we i think we we by nature and by our history and by our mission, locate ourselves in the people who are missing out, you know, the people who are for whom life is a struggle, who's, you know, more than half the children in Tower Hamlets are in poverty, the pensioner poverty rates are four times the national average. All of those things mean that it's really essential that organizations like ours are there for people who are missing out. Nevertheless, someone said it in our all staff day the other day, one of our one of our advisors who works with older people said, you know, the old Who come here love to have fun. We want to have this place as somewhere where people can come and have fun. We want to be open to families. We want to to be, if you like, a kind of a model of what good development could look like. So, people who come for debt advice or people who come to our wellbeing centre, people who come just to experience our space will, as happened 130 years ago when Toby Hall set up, rub shoulders with wealthier people who live close by or people who are coming to have their lunch or people who just want to explore a beautiful building and gardens in, you know on the edge of the city and you know it's a big imperative for us to get that right that doesn't mean we should be devoting activities to devoting and devoting resources to to, to people who could easily pay for them or get them from somewhere else at the expense of people who couldn't but nevertheless I think if we're going to have a if we're going to fulfill our kind of ambition to make the place around us a good place for everyone, then there's got to be an opportunity to, to mix people and bring people together
0: yeah totally and um, and just it's slightly going off on a on a tangent here, but it's something related to that and I know we when we had a chat um a little while ago before we arranged to do this, it's something we talked about but i'm I'm just interested in your take on the the slight kind of complexities that might be hidden when people talk about place, particularly around philanthropy and it as a sort of motivation for giving. It's sometimes presented as if, oh, you know everybody's got a sense of place, therefore they'll want to give where where they live, but actually. You know particularly in London or somewhere as complex as London, it strikes me that the where people feel a sense of community or identity or place can be you know can take multiple different have sort of multiple different levels and be quite hard to to pin down i mean what what's your sense from working in Toynbee Hall of the different ways in which the different communities you you work with kind of feel an association with with place?
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question, and um, you know, I, I talk about it a lot, and, and I encourage my team and, and the people we work with to think about where we are. But, but you know, by the nature of London, people, pe- people, even if they, even if they live locally, they may work. Yeah, particularly if they're in insecure employment, they may work in lots of different places actually outside of the local area. Their families are probably living in different places there where they go shopping, where their children go to school because of the nature of the education system now might be in completely different places. So, well, people will have, and, and I think that there was a recent survey by the GLA, the Londoners survey, which found that you know, lots of people, over 70% of, of, of Londoners, are proud of being Londoners, and, and about the same number are actually proud of the area that they're, they're, they live in. So, so in a sense, there are, there are things to go on and there are real positives for people. Um, I, th- I think, though, it gets, and it's partly the, the thing I was alluding to earlier, versus, in terms of the kind of, you know, how much, how much a piece of kind of work might be about what happens on a particular estate versus what happens in a neighborhood versus what might happen in a kind of local authority area versus what might happen in a kind of uh london-wide um kind of context and we're i suppose we're trying to balance all of those we're we're, because we're bigger than just being a kind of uh a very local um neighbourhood organization. That's that's not what Toynbee Hall is. And we, we shouldn't pretend to be. Nevertheless, we have some characteristics of that. And so we have to kind of try and balance that, you know, very granular um, concerns of people around their very day-to-day existence in a place versus the kind of systemic changes that might one might want to see whether at local authority level or London wide level or national level. And I don't it isn't easy. And I think organisations that that, that, that kind of that set out to to radically change places will probably quite quickly bump up against the fact that, <laughs> that there are systemic factors that are beyond their control whether that's because education policy is set nationally or transport isn't controlled locally or whatever they might be so so it's kind of it's very it, it, I, i'm, 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 I'm I have massive respect for, you know, all of the organisations that are trying to make change locally and I think they do incredible work in things like Local Trust and Participatory Cities and hundreds and hundreds of community organisations that, that I, I know well both in East London and elsewhere are doing an amazing job but it's, I think they would all say that Place doesn't stop our geographical boundary actually, Place goes on well beyond that.
0: And that's yeah. It's really interesting because I guess it it comes to a sort of separate question I wanted to come back to about the 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 sort of choice or maybe it's a false choice for for organisations but within the charity sector or sort of philanthropy more broadly between kind of delivering services directly to try and address some some sort of perceived problem or focusing more on influencing or campaigning or advocacy to kind of drive change or address the underlying structural issues. And as I say, I'm not sure it's actually a binary choice or shouldn't be. But that that place element seems really interesting, because from what you're saying, there are some things that are at a level where they're sufficiently kind of local to you that you could, you can at least, or you at least have the option of sort of delivering a service Uh, in order to address them even if that's not the end of your ambition but then there are other things where if you want to do anything at all you have to think at a at a wider level or more systemically for that latter group what what sort of approach do you take to engaging with you know advocacy or campaigning is that something that you do or you just try and work with other organizations to do it
1: yeah it's a good it's i mean you know i think i think there are some good examples and again i can forgive me for being london-centric i just just that's because i've worked here for the last few years but um you know things like the the giving campaigns islington giving in particular have led the way in terms of trying to to bring that you know local authority business other stakeholders and the voluntary sector alongside ordinary people in communities together to kind of have a shared agenda about what can what can change in the area, which which by definition begins to get into kind of systemic change approaches. I mean, it is it is a dilemma. I agree with you. It isn't binary. Uh, you know, we, we, there's a, I suppose there's there's examples. You know, we, we run advice services. Our you know our kind of heart, I suppose, our the, the biggest part of our organisation is around advice, and, and there's a real kind of sense from our our team that welfare benefits advice is something that's Really needed in the local area, and I've, I've absolutely no doubt that it is. Um, and, and, and people have said to us outside that that's that's one of the things that they struggle with. But I suppose we have to we're we're, a, we're an organisation of advisors. We have to be careful that our, our default solution to something isn't well. Let's provide more advice. It, you know, it could be well. Let's you know let's let's take a more systemic approach with this and work with policymakers to try and make the implementation of um the kind of Development of policy around welfare benefits better so that people don't miss out. Now we, that's not something we can do individually. So I suspect for us it's going to have to be a mix of the two. I collaborating in partnership with others around that systemic challenge, while at the same time doing what we can to deliver more information and advice to people. But I, you know, we, we've had examples here before before my time where uh, we were involved in something which is you know led to our, our money mentors kind of peer financial inclusion. Um, program that I that I described earlier, but which was called Financially Inclusive Tower Hamlets, and it was it was an, an approach to try and get everybody in Tower Hamlets to think, well, what could we do to make the the borough more financially inclusive for people? Whether that was you know, banks and the way that they interacted with people, or, or schools and the way that they educated people, or voluntary organisations in the way that they provided advice, information, etc., etc. And it was. Uh, you know, it was a it was a really good experiment, and it led to some really interesting things. And it, and it it would be impossible to say it was a success, and it was one of those things that probably could have been sustained longer. And for for whatever reason, didn't get that. But I I think that is I think that's a that's a real you know in 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 the spirit of Julia Unwin's report and 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 the kind of I suppose in the context of a a challenging time for for government of what any nature, given everything else that's going on, the kind of need for us as civil society to take a, a more ambitious approach to things ourselves, and I think it's possibly easier to do that at a, at a kind of place-based level, say, well, you know, what kind of, in our case, what kind of Tower Hamlets or what kind of East London or in what kind of London do, do the people we work with want to live in? Well, then what could we all do to try and get there? And I think that's... that. Uh, That's where we I think that's where I would like us to to be in the narrative of civil society to be to kind of be pushing that question. And I think we would find policy doors would open as would, you know, as would kind of questions for ourselves about reshaping the kinds of services that we do as well.
0: Yeah, and it I mean it certainly seems to me that ties in very much with the the, the sort of history of Toynbee Hall as I understand it. Because I mean it's I guess it's it's quite famous for having a number of high profile figures like Beveridge and Clement Attlee, who at one time sort of spent time there and, and became much more famous for uh focusing on kind of what the state could do, but actually clearly very much believed in in the separate value of voluntary action and the interplay between them and didn't see it as a sort of either-or choice I mean do do you think I mean one question around this you mentioned Julia Unwin, though I had I spoke to her on the podcast not too long ago and one thing we were chatting about was whether actually the the narrative from government and probably you know played into by the sector itself had shifted too far towards the idea that the voluntary sector was there to provide services and nothing else and that actually that had kind of laid some of the the foundations for what we're seeing at the moment with there being more of a negative attitude towards the the kind of campaigning role of of um of charities and things like you know the lobbying act and the introduction of advocacy clauses in in grant contracts do i mean do you feel at a at a local level that doors are open to you amongst policymakers or that they will listen to you or do you get any sense that they kind of they like it when you deliver services but they really rather that you didn't turn around and also be critical about policy
1: yeah no I I, I, I do find people are very open and I you know was a civil servant myself once upon a time and I you know we we, we've, we've got a There is good constructive relationship with our local authority and with the GLA, uh, and I think there's definitely an appetite because I don't, you know, I've rarely met any kind of public servant who thought that they had all the answers. They genuinely want to be informed and I think are legitimate and essential role. And I think that's Moatley and Beveridge and, and many other people have spotted before before me. So it's no, it's no revelation. Really our, essential, our essential role is that we can, you know, we 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 all, if we're any good, we are going to be that bit closer to people and that bit potentially more trusted. I don't know why that quite should be, but but it's 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 our it's our duty to be trusted by the people that we work with, so we can faithfully give them platforms to kind of use their experience to inform those kind of things. So I, I do think, and you know, if you look at just, it's party conference season at the moment, and again, one needs to be careful about reading too much into Twitter, but there's certainly no shortage of charities and civil society organizations there trying to influence policy, trying to kind of put ideas into the frame, trying to work in collaboration with politicians and others and each other to try and, shape better ideas for, for doing things. And I think that's completely legitimate. And I don't think I don't think it is as simple as saying, oh, because because you know we, we run a pan London debt advice service, uh funded uh, by a by a kind of an offshoot organisation of the DWP and we've got a great relationship with them but it doesn't stop us making points about Debt and what needs to be done about it, and I, and I think I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if there were many charities that did say that they were constrained about faithfully representing the experience of the people that they work with, because that's what we're there for.
0: Well, that's extremely encouraging to hear if common sense is prevailing at this uh, at this time in uh, in that context. Um, I, I'm aware that we're sort of in danger of running long, so I just just wanted to sort of um, get a, a sense from you before we go of what you know what you kind of felt were the big um, I guess uh, ambitions for Toynbee Hall over the next few years and potentially what you see as some sort of big challenges for you or you know charities or or kind of London as a city more broadly
1: yeah that's a great great question Um, you know we've been through this kind of I suppose reinventing of ourselves in terms of our physical infrastructure at Toynbee Hall and so for the last probably five years or so I've only been here two years but the kind of We've we've tried to incrementally improve the work we do while at the same time trying to make sure that we get our building completed and you know manage our our resources so that that can be done in a an effective way and so that's been quite all encompassing and, and so we're we're coming out of that now in, in a really exciting way and 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 some of the things I've talked about during our during our conversation around really being a kind of uh, an open place for the community around us, being a place where people can make change for themselves when they're facing challenges, uh, whether they be around debt or justice or housing or all the kinds of things that, that that we know affect the community around us, and and also that that challenge about us being relevant to. To more of the community than we are, you know, we, 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 we. It's not, you know, we want, it, 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 I think charities need to be quite careful, and we certainly do about thinking. Oh, because there's a lot of need in this area, we have to create a service for everything. We emphatically don't, because there are lots of other really good organisations doing things. The skill for us is being able to position ourselves as part of a network of organisations, including where relevant business and and the local authority and and the health authority and others but but making sure that we're playing our part uh, here in the local area and crucially that 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 doesn't become a kind of parochial limiting thing but it allows us to amplify the voices of people in this area to to make systemic change and i think that's that's what we try and that's what we try and do i think for, for you know as a civil society organization we're always going to have the challenge of well is there enough enough money to pay for all of that what's the balance between innovation and kind of just keeping things going the risk that as an organization we think because we do something today, we're always going to need to do it, which is a real, you know, a, a real challenge for, for, for us and, and for others. And many organisations have reinvented themselves really well. I hope I hope as part of our redevelopment, we're we're doing that ourselves. That doesn't that doesn't, by the way, mean that I've got a kind of list of things that I want us to stop doing, not at all. It's just we always have to be responsive to the environment around us. And I think with the prospect of an election, with certainly in London a mayoral election next year, I think around some of the big challenges that 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 london faces particularly around inequality particularly around the kind of the kind of economy that we want here particularly around things like serious youth violence and particularly around things like housing um you know we can we can be more ambitious collectively in london about those things and and hopefully uh you know the, the the dialogue that i talked about with the gla and others will allow us to to make a real change but um yeah, I think think particularly at this time, yeah, I said it to my team the other day, given everything else that's going on, it it, it feels like it's a really important thing for, for organizations like Toynbee Hall and, and other charities to be here and be open to people because people have got fewer places to turn. So it's important that we take that seriously and do something with it.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I'd agree sort of 100% on that. Listen, Jim, yeah, it's been uh, great having you on the podcast. Thanks again very much for for coming on. Um and yeah, hopefully, you know, we can uh, at some point sort of further down the line maybe get you back on and find out uh, how some of these things have progressed as, you know, the mayoral elections and things happen next year.
1: Lovely. Thanks Roger, you enjoyed it. So, yeah, thank you very much indeed. It was really really great uh, thoughtful conversation. Thanks.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks again to Jim for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed having the chance to chat to him. and I don't think I've ever been to Toynbee Hall, so I'm hoping at some point to to get down there and have a look because I'm fascinated by the history of the organisation and would love to see what it's doing now. Um, if you were interested in the sorts of things we were talking about, I'll put some links in the show notes to relevant things that I've done and, and things that uh, about Toynbee Hall. Uh, if you're interested more broadly in kind of issues around philanthropy and civil society, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or at philiteracy where i also tweet out um, far too long threads about the history of philanthropy and other sort of interesting writings about philanthropy and um, if you've got ideas for things that we could talk about on the podcast or people i could uh, interview uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org other than that like subscribe tell all your friends leave a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you next time okay bye